From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We are definitely seeing a dramatic decline in connection. We are seeing it in my samples of kids. We are seeing it around the globe. We are seeing shocking rates, as you alluded to, of loneliness, of suicide rates. I mean, it's just off the charts. That's Dr. Niobe Way. She's a professor of applied psychology at NYU, where she's the founder of the Project for Advancement of Our Common Humanity. She's also a founder of The Listening Project, a program developed to teach young people how to engage in active listening. The mission is to address what Way calls the crisis of connection. People are more technologically connected than ever, but they are also lonelier than ever. Way's human-driven research focuses on how people, and young boys in particular, form relationships and how those relationships impact their lives. And further, how losing those relationships can have devastating consequences. That's coming up. Stay tuned. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. You know, here on Stay Tuned, we get a lot of great questions every week from listeners who I don't know. But every once in a while, I get an excellent question from somebody who is a friend and a colleague. So this popped up in a text to me over the weekend. A question from your editor. Could the DOJ make a plea deal with Trump that includes him agreeing not to run for president? Is that legal? And of course, my editor is the great Peter Gethers, who edited my book, Doing Justice, at Knopf, and who I talk to all the time. And he has a question. I thought it was a great question, a version of which other people have also put forward. And let me answer it. It is absolutely legal. The DOJ could make a plea deal with Donald Trump, and they could hypothetically be negotiating a plea deal as we all wait with bated breath on whether or not there will be a charge relating to the Mar-a-Lago documents, the classified and otherwise sensitive documents that allegedly were mishandled. Just like with respect to all sorts of other rights, people can make an arrangement and agree to a bargain in which a, a politician like Donald Trump seeks not to run for office. Now, there's a version of this that happens with a little bit more frequency, and that is sometimes in public corruption investigations. At the beginning of a case or during a resolution negotiation, a politician agrees to resign from office. Some version of that happened when Elliot Spitzer was investigated by the Southern District of New York. A number of years ago, he left the governorship and was ultimately not prosecuted. Now here, I think it's a more highly unusual thing. I'm not aware of a precedent for it where someone agrees in a plea disposition not to run for office again. I think more importantly and more relevantly here, it's not something Donald Trump's lawyers are engaging in, I don't think at all. I don't think they're engaging in plea talks. I don't think he has any interest in pleading guilty to anything, whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. I think the meeting that happened at the Department of Justice this week 
was one in which Donald Trump's lawyers aggressively argued against any indictment or charge whatsoever, not a sensitive plea negotiation whose terms would be agreed to by both parties. So I think the idea of pleading to something or getting even a declination on the condition that Donald Trump not run for office again is highly, highly unlikely, though there's nothing that prevents it legally as far as I know. I also think from the perspective of the Department of Justice, it might look a little bit political to be seeking a resolution in which no further run for office would be permitted. It would arguably look a little bit like the department has an interest not in holding Donald Trump accountable for past crimes, but in a political result that takes him off the table in 2024. So for various reasons, Peter, I think the great question, uh, an interesting legal question, but I think as a political matter and as a practical matter, not going to happen. This question comes in an email from Mark. Hello, Preet. Longtime listener of Stay Tuned and Cafe Insider and value the content on both shows every week. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. My question has to do with the audio recording of Trump talking to his staffers that emerged last week, at least to the public. If this is evidence of him sharing documents requiring security clearance, and at this point it's just speculation, how is that evidence presented in court, to the jury, relayed to the public, and so on? So, Mark, I think the tape you're referring to is one that, to my knowledge, has not been heard by anyone in the public, but has been reported on. And it's a tape from the summer of 2021 in which Donald Trump seems to, according to reports, acknowledge that he has possession of classified documents, sensitive documents. He understands that they're classified and tends to understand that they have not been declassified, notwithstanding other arguments that he and his lawyers have been making about telepathically declassifying documents or standing order to declassify or the automatic declassification of documents when they left the White House and came to Mar-a-Lago. So that's pretty probative evidence. And if I understand your question correctly, uh, to be a procedural one, if prosecutors are in possession of a tape like that, how is it used and is it appropriate to be used? Well, you may be familiar with the hearsay rule. People talk about hearsay all the time on television programs and in film. And basically the hearsay rule says that out-of-court statements are not permitted to be used at trial. That if you're going to get testimony from someone, it shouldn't be from something they said out of court. It should be something that can be tested in court by cross-examination and otherwise. But there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. And one very, very important exception, particularly in criminal cases, is the admission of a party opponent. So the hearsay rule says, no out-of-court statements, generally speaking, but there's an exception for admissions by a party opponent. And the rule says a statement is admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule if it is offered against a party, and here would be offered against Trump, and it is his own statement in either his individual or a representative capacity. And here, Donald Trump's statements, as reported, are his own statements, and they're adopted by him, and they're made by him, and they'd be offered against him. And they're also, by the way, exceptionally probative and relevant to the question at hand. What is Donald Trump's, or what was Donald Trump's state of mind with respect to these documents, which bears on the elements that the government has to prove, and also bears quite directly on the viability of the defenses that his lawyers have decided to propound and put forward so far. So the simple answer to your question is, how is it presented in court? They press the play button. All of this is premised on the foundation, by the way, that it's an authentic tape. And there are all sorts of rules of evidence relating to the authentication of documents brought into evidence, also relating to tape recordings, also relating to videos. Generally speaking, that has historically not been much of an issue. I suppose as we go forward in this age of artificial intelligence and the prospect of deep fakes, that you'll increasingly hear a defense 
that that wasn't me on the tape. That wasn't me on the video. I don't know what the provenance of the video is and the tape is in this matter and who was in possession of it and who would be able to testify that it was authentic and real and genuine, but presumably the government has that or will have that. This question comes in an email from Keith, who says, a serious question, not meant to inflate your ego, but have you ever noticed how many of your guests' first response to a query of yours is, that's a great question? I often agree and wonder if you come up with them all yourself or have a slew of editorial help. Tell us about your process, Preet. I've been a regular listener since the beginning and love the show. Well, thank you. Ego duly inflated. And of course, I have a slew of editorial help. I have a wonderful team at CAFE. You hear their names at the end of every episode, and we couldn't put the show together without them. So I'll give you a little bit of, a, of an insight into the process. With every guest, we prepare. And when I say we, I mean me and others on the team, depending on the guest. I get typically every week, for every guest on Stay Tuned, because it's a lengthy and substantive and in-depth interview, a memo of between 15 and 25 pages, sometimes longer, that describes their biography, that has quotes from various writings that they've engaged in, summaries of, of topics and issues that are relevant to that person and their expertise. And there's also a list of proposed questions. So some of the questions I ask that you like and enjoy and that the guest likes and enjoys and comments on come from the team. Some of them come from me as I prepare for the interview. And some of them are not planned at all. And some of my favorite questions are the ones that just pop up in my head in the midst of the interview. When someone is saying something that I didn't expect or didn't know or didn't appreciate, and I respond in the moment with a question there. You'll see in a few minutes as you listen to my interview with Niobe Way that we talk about this a little bit. And I think, you know, implicit in your in your question is what makes for a good question in an interview. And I think, as Niobe says, it's curiosity. And the more curious I am about a guest or the guest's expertise, particularly when it's an area or topic that I'm less familiar with and not expert in, I think my curiosity comes to the fore and we have a better conversation. And by the way, if I may say so, Keith, that's a great question. I'll be right back with my conversation with Niobe Way. Support for this episode of Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. A huge monthly cell phone bill might feel inevitable. We've all gotten used to climbing rates, surprising surcharges, and expensive plans. And most of us shrug and assume that we're stuck and there's no other option. So we just pay. But what if there was another option? An option that was much more affordable. Allow me to introduce you to Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All Mint Mobile plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can make the switch and keep the phone and number you have right now, along with all of your existing contacts. You can get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month by going to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. Last month, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, issued a warning to the public about the negative health impacts of loneliness and the alarming rates of loneliness in the U.S. Dr. Niobe Wei is a professor of applied psychology at NYU and the author of Deep Secrets, Boys' Friendships and the Crisis of Connection. She studies what the high stakes of loneliness are. Niobe Wei, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I'm pleased to have you here. You're my colleague in a different discipline at uh, mm. the New York University. Yep. I'm particularly pleased to have you discuss important issues because, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Supreme Court cases and the debt ceiling and the war in Ukraine and the economy. And all of those are obviously important and they're important in the moment. And also in the long term, some issues certainly are in that category like climate change. But there are other issues that we've touched upon every once in a while. And I think we overlook them because they don't seem to be a crisis in the same way that the other things are covered as crises. And you have spent a large part of your career investigating, talking about, thinking about, speaking about what you call the crisis of connection. And I think that's one of the most underreported and underappreciated issues and crises of our time. So I'm glad you're here to talk about it. Can you just, in broad strokes, tell us what you mean when you talk about the crisis of connection? Oh, yeah. And I have to say, Preet, even hearing you say that is uh, gives me the goosebumps uh, because I really do. I feel like I've been hearing about the crisis of connection for decades from young people. Uh, and so I've been trying to shout this at the top of the mountain for a long time. Yeah, I'd love to tell you what I mean by crisis of connection. It's everything I say, by the way, Preet, to you today is really what I've learned from listening to young people since 1987, actually. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist and I do studies, longitudinal studies, where I follow the same kids over many years, uh, usually six or seven years, hundreds of kids. Um, and I've been focusing on boys in the last decade or so uh, in particular. Um, and they tell us a very, very clear story. And, you know, it's interesting, Preet, that you bring in those other issues that you often address in your podcast, because actually what I'm going to argue today, based on what boys have taught me, is that they're actually all connected to the crisis of connection. So this is what boys teach me. And I'll tell you a little bit about when I say boys, who I mean. So uh, I started uh, as a high school counselor. I'll be very quick. I started as a high school counselor in the late 80s, listening to boys of color predominantly from working class communities. And the thing that struck me the most in listening in when I was a counselor was there the discussion of friendships and their desire for friendships and their desire for close male friendships um, and their struggles to find them. And what I realized as, as I began to actually do research on this topic and when I became a doctoral student at Harvard and I started to actually follow teenagers, including teenage boys over many years, fascinated by their friendships and why we weren't talking about them. Um, and in fact, people oftentimes think boys don't want those kinds of friendships and that's the opposite of what I found in the at this point, thousands of boys I've interviewed over many years. Um, 
And what the boys tell me, they tell me a story that reveals the crisis of connection, which is that when they are in early adolescence, which is about 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, um, they're very clear that they want these close friendships, that they that they need these close friendships or else they'd go, quote unquote, wacko, um, that they would feel lonely and isolated if they didn't have friendships uh, that in which you could share your deep secrets. These are not just friendships to play soccer or basketball. These They're really looking for friendships in which they can be vulnerable. They can share their secrets. They can talk about problems at home and, and problems with other people and not be laughed at or turned into a joke. Um, and they talked a lot about their desires. Some boys found those friendships in early adolescence and, and some boys didn't. But they all talked about the desire for it. And then as they got older, um, and remember, I'm going back to the same boys year after year after year. As they got older, you began to hear this shift in language um, from when they were in early adolescence. They talked a lot. You, ha- you heard a lot of words about love and I can't live without him. And I mean, beautiful, beautiful quotes from boys uh, and in Deep Secrets, which is the book that talks about these findings. And you hear this beautiful language in their, in their narratives. And then as they get older, you start to hear this sort of stereotypic man up language. So you start to hear things like it's hard to find, you know, basically it's hard to find friendships and I don't want them anymore. You know, that basically I don't need them. It's okay, whatever. And their language becomes much more, uh, both either sort of depressed. Um, and you hear a sadness in their, in their interviews. Or it becomes this sort of, I don't care, whatever, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And the repetition of doesn't matter, of course, suggests that it does matter. Um, and a very frustration that as they are supposed to become a man, that they are supposed to actually disconnect from the very relationships that they yearn for, which is with other boys and the intimacy between, emotional intimacy between boys. How does that happen? If it's the case, based on your study, that most boys want to have and want to maintain strong friendships with other boys, that something in that dynamic causes them to adopt the languages you've written about of self-reliance and autonomy and not having to rely on other people. If everybody wants it, what is causing it not to happen? What's the problem? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, thank you for asking that question, actually. Um, so essentially what I've learned, I mean, that was my big question for in years and years of hearing these patterns of the crisis of connection among boys and then realizing it's a larger crisis of connection across the whole culture, uh, particularly among boys and men, but also among girls and women as well, is really that we live in a culture, a modern culture, I call it in my new book that's coming out next fall, quote unquote boy culture, where we um, privilege everything we associate with being hard over everything we associate with being soft. So we think that, you know, maturity is defined in the same way as masculinity, which is defined as the same way as being, as we define success, which is being independent, autonomous, stoic, all the things that we put on the, on the top of the hierarchy of, of human qualities. And then we demean and mock those soft sides, the vulnerability, the softness, the sensitivity. Um, there's so many demeaning comments we can say to each other about being overly sensitive, too vulnerable. Um, sort of weak. We associate vulnerability with weakness. So not only do boys get that message and during adolescence when they're supposed to become a man to stop stop showing their soft side because otherwise that means they're girly and gay. And Preet, I have to say something very clear to your listeners. We think we've become more enlightened around issues of 
of, you know, sexuality, et cetera. We think we would no longer think that girly and gay is a slur, uh, but we are definitely still in a culture that thinks to be girly and gay is a slur, meaning it's a negative thing. So boys still are talking about that they don't want to look like a girl, they don't want to sound like a girl. And in fact, this desire for friendship has been feminized. So, uh, and seen as soft, the desire for emotional intimacy with same-sex peers. So the idea is that they want to grow up to become mature and a man. And that is defined as literally not being soft and being able to control your emotions. When you say we, we impose these standards or these rules or these dynamics, who is we? Is we Americans or is we adults or is we just boys generally all over the world? Well, it's interesting because um, I would say that when I say we, I mean really people are participating in modern culture, but who's driving modern culture? The values perpetuated modern culture, which the self is over relationships, you know, all the things that are relational are demeaned and all the things that are about the me, me, me are privileged. So in modern culture, um, I would say it's very much driven by American values. Um, And so to me, when I say we, for the boys I've interviewed, I'm definitely talking about American society. Um, but I see it around the world. I've lived around the world in many different places. I see it in China. I've lived in China for many years. Um, Abu Dhabi in the uh, United Arab Emirates, you know, in Europe. I was born in Paris. Um, so I see that sort of infusion of American hypermasculinity into the culture where you have students, Indian students, for example, saying, um, they didn't know when I present on the importance of relationships and friendships. They said, I thought that was just a value from my culture, not from American culture. Um, and so the idea is that it's definitely coming from American culture and being infiltrated into the larger world that somehow being a man and being an adult, and that's the, that's the disturbing part in particular, is it's even about being an adult is not showing your soft side. So I would say I I blame American society <laughs> a lot on sort of what it's doing to the to the world. And you know, there's something interesting there because we also perpetuate the myth. I think that we're the sort of the most enlightened in the world, uh, American adults. And in fact, we really do perpetuate in one aspect this notion of maturity and, and adulthood, um, and certainly masculinity. That's, that's really only half of our humanity, uh, our hard side and not the other side. And, and a lot of cultures, Preet, as you may know directly, a lot of cultures around the world um, are much more explicitly valuing both sides of our humanity. Um, and, you know, and then the pressure to sort of value only one half gets, gets instilled as, as they become more and more uh, Americanized. Do you have a working definition of friend or friendship? Again, I don't define, I always listen to what kids tell me. So what kids tell me is that a friend that they're looking for is someone to be able to share their secrets and not be laughed at. Um, and that's coming from boys. And girls girls pretty much say the same thing, but they don't talk about being laughed at because that's a very masculine thing that boys do with each other, um, is they mock the vulnerability by making it into a joke. When we read about studies, and maybe you can put some numbers on the on the board here, that say, and I've read about them with some alarm for the last couple of years, that men and boys in particular, but people generally in America, have fewer people they consider to be close friends today than they did 30 years, 40 years ago, by dramatically shrink- shrinking numbers. Is it your sense that that's 
the working definition of friend in those studies as well? Yeah, I mean, this is a... <laughs> This is the thing. I mean, it's just so clear. Young people just tell us the story. I mean, we're, we're losing our capacity with friendships. And yes, technology, everybody always asks me, is it because of technology? Is it because of Facebook and Instagram and, and TikTok, et cetera? It's not because of that. It's that we have, we are using that technology in a way that aligns with our cultural values, which is the me, 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 and that looking for affirmation. And this is the, we are definitely seeing a dramatic decline in connection. We are seeing it in my samples of kids. We are seeing it around the globe. We are seeing shocking rates, as you alluded to, of loneliness, of suicide rates. I mean, it's just off the charts. And by the way, black and brown boys are the most likely to be committing suicide at this point in this in the in the United States. Um, and so the idea is that we are really getting worse. And I would say the reason is, is because we keep on not seeing what the problem is. We keep on thinking it's about lonely people or it's about depressed people. Um, it's not. It's a whole culture that doesn't value what is essential to our human nature, which is the love of each other, the love of ourselves and the love of each other. And ultimately a culture that does not align with our nature. So this culture-nature clash that we're experiencing, a culture that doesn't fit what humans need, all humans, um, creates this crisis of connection. And that's what boys teach me. So it really is, we keep on thinking for, I'll give you an example, Preet. We keep on thinking it's a mental health crisis. Well, no, the mental health crisis is a symptom. It's a symptom of the crisis of connection. Um, you know, the boys tell us, if I don't have these close connections, I will go wacko. And that's what you see in the mass shooters. That's what you see in the highly, heavily uh, lonely kids um, who do who do bad things, do violent things. Um, is that sense of utter isolation makes kids and put boys in particular because the pressure is more on them makes kids go wacko um, because it's really a culture that doesn't pay attention to human needs. So I would say as long as we don't pay attention to the real problem, well, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and then have reverberations into how we care for each other or don't care for each other, basically. So there's this other concept that Americans focus on rhetorically and otherwise, and that's the notion of the family. And there's controversy about how you define family. But I wonder, in, in your studies about loneliness and friendship and the crisis of connection, where does that intersect with how Americans think about, talk about, feel about family? You know, it's just a, it's just a strange thing. So I am, you know, I'm bicultural. So I was born in France. My dad was in France his, uh, his whole life. Uh, I've lived in lots of different cultures. So I feel like I actually have some insight into being American because I've lived outside of it as well uh, for many long periods of my life. So I would say that basically Americans fundamentally do not see relationships, whether it's friendships or family relationships, as foundational as they do for the desire for autonomy and independence and freedom, you know, freedom to do what you want, say what you want, et cetera, that we have imbibed a value system that places our relationships on the bottom. Now, friendships are definitely way on the bottom and, you know, families are more valued than friendships for sure. Um, but the very simple fact, pre, and I'm going to sound very old fashioned when I say this, you know, Americans live they, you know, their children grow up and we live all over the country or all over the world. <laughs> and we oftentimes don't actually live close to each other because we don't actually really value living close to each other. And so I would say families are valued more than friends, but they're still not valued as much as 
they should be given their foundational to our health and well-being. You've mentioned that this crisis can lead to more violence and it has led to more suicide. It's been put very starkly by the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who recently wrote the following, quote, the risk of premature death posed by social disconnection is similar to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than obesity and physical inactivity, according to review of research on social connection, end quote. Is that right? Absolutely. That's what the research shows. I mean, what's it, it's important to say is that he's not speaking some sort of, you know, ideology or some sort of, you know, exaggerating the data. That is directly coming from studies. And I'll tell you another study, which is interesting for your listeners. So two quick studies, not mine, uh, but it's in the literature and, and Vivek oftentimes refers to them as well. Um, so one is that they do these um, uh, health-based studies where they give you a mild uh, scrape on your hand and they rate how quickly it heals. And those who are in more connected relationships are feeling more connected to other people heal quicker than those who are feeling more isolated. So your body, you're literally your immune system, your ability to heal is sacrificed when you're not connected. And the second finding, which everybody always quotes because they love this because it's so powerful. They did this at UVA originally, and it's now been replicated. They have people standing at the base of a hill and they have a backpack on and there's a, there's a hill in front of them. And they have to estimate the steepness of the hill while they're holding the backpack. And next to them, there are four conditions. One is that they're alone, one that they're with a best friend standing next to them, one that they're with a stranger, and one that they're, uh, they're um, with someone they know but not close. Okay, are you ready, Preet? <laughs> I'm bracing the, myself. The, uh, right? The people who are standing next to their best friend estimate the hill as less steep than all the other conditions. So what that means, just to tell your listeners very clearly, is that we are deeply social animals. And when we experience a sense of love and closeness around us, we actually see the world as less difficult. What if their best friend is named Sisyphus? Is the hill, is the hill <laughs> exactly. higher? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> I exactly, think they should exactly. redo but, the experiment with exactly, friend exactly, named Sisyphus. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, but, but it's just incredible to me how sensitive we are. We're just so sensitive. I mean, we, and he, here we, I mean humans, you know, humans are just so sensitive. You know, we, we pick up the vibe next to us. And when it feels supportive, we see the world as less difficult. And so think about what that means in schools, in all contexts, in workplaces. I mean, it just, it's profound to me. It's profound to me. I want to ask you about technology for a moment. You mentioned it earlier. There are aspects of technology and the dedication to the screen that make perfect sense as to why that alienates folks from each other and contributes to the, the crisis of connection. But in another respect, maybe I'm being silly about this, technology has brought people together. So for example, texting and emailing was not a possibility when I was young. And I get that if you're just doom scrolling on Twitter or just looking at TikTok, that's not connecting with people. I find as a grown person, uh, blessed to have many friends that I can be in contact with and connected to many more people than I was able to be 30 years ago. And I find connection by text or email with friends, some, some of whom live you know, far away. I have a friend in, in the Netherlands who I text on a regular basis. I have friends in California. I have friends who are just busy and I don't get to see them in New York. And these are people I don't necessarily physically see or have a meal with, but I do feel a connection to them and I share things with them and they share things with me. 
Am I overstating the value of that, or is there something to that? Uh, there's absolutely something to that, and and this is something I because I get this question a lot from parents. Uh, I um, is they say you know isn't the problem the tech if we got rid of the technology wouldn't that be better? Absolutely not. I mean. I see it in my own life, just like you do, Preet. I mean, I, I see it in my own life, the way texting, uh, texting with my children, texting with my friends, texting with my, we have a family chat, yeah. WhatsApp, a family chat that we talk. I mean, we never had that. My entire family, I have a huge family. We're all on this chat. And so we're all communicating with each other all the time. So I, I, I would say, again, if we understood it's a cultural problem that leads to a crisis of connection, the culture nature clash, we could we would understand that technology actually, and I'm even going to be I'm going to be controversial. Preet. I would even say AI could actually be a tool to help humans connect with other humans, and and if we we use it that way, I'll give you an example. TikTok, for example, TikTok could easily be a platform where you model an influencer with their best friend trying to address a conflict with each other and coming to a resolution or showing a, a way that they trust each other on TikTok. I mean, you could easily model relationships on TikTok, which would be very influential in terms of showing, modeling people how you actually have close relationships and, and the kinds of questions you can ask each other to become closer. Um, AI, I'll give you, I'll be very blunt. I'm in the midst of trying to build something that actually uses this. Um, is AI could be used as essentially building, you know, uh, an algorithm with AI that helps humans humans actually connect to each other and ask questions um, that allows people to see each other and outside of a set of stereotypes. So it really is the way we use technology to just reinforce our very disconnected and honestly, I would say dystopian culture that is really just about getting self-affirmation rather than connecting. Going back to my my question from a minute ago, do we overemphasize the importance of in-person connection and contact or not? Well, that's a great question. I think about that question a lot. I actually think about it almost every day. Because, you know, I, I get into debates with some people <laughs> whom I'm close, who will be listening. So if I'm texting with somebody, I can have a real conversation. And I do that with, I do that with work colleagues, you know, all the time. And obviously some work colleagues are also friends. My mom and dad like a phone call. And the text is not anywhere close to a substitute for a phone call. I can have, for me personally, maybe you'll tell me that, that I have dystopian tendencies, <laughs> that, that I can have a, um, a meaningful text exchange with a friend or a colleague that is, that is just as good as a phone call and it's more efficient. Is there something wrong with me? Um, first of all, definitely, Preet. <laughs> um, <laughs> finally an honest guest. Finally, finally an honest guest. Uh, no, uh, I mean, basically... This is the funny thing about humans, because I, I feel the same way. I have some of my most intimate conversations with my daughter, actually, on text. Um, it's you know, easier to say some things yeah, on text and, and, than and, saying them, and, you know, otherwise. Exactly. And, and I have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out myself here. I love the millions of hearts she sometimes sends me in the middle of the day. I mean, you know, she'll send me heart emo uh, emoticons and I find myself a little bit addicted to them. <laughs> so I want the heart emoticon. And if she doesn't send me a heart emoticon, then it shouldn't be the only mode of communication, but I, I, no, no. <laughs> I, I think we just, I think yeah. we disparage it. Yeah. Maybe I'm just trying to justify, you know, my um, tendencies, but um, I have, I have an actual professor uh, and, and, and person of science to endorse my view here. 
Yeah. No, I mean, this is it. We we are starving. I mean, pre, I'm going to say it very dramatically because this is how young people express it to me. We are starving for connection. We are starving for it. And what's happening is that we, you know, we don't, most of us don't feel listened to. That's about 80% of the country um, doesn't feel listened to. So we're starving for someone to listen to us. But what we haven't figured out <laughs> is that if everybody's starving to be listened to and tell their story, but nobody's interested in listening to another person to hear their story, um, we're never going to feel connected. We've also lost out. I'm going to have to throw this into this interview because it's so important. We are born interpersonally curious. We are born wanting to know, Preet, about you, about why you do things, why you're sad, why you're happy. You, every every person knows a five-year-old is, has incessant questions about why do you do things. Um, and what happens is we discourage that form because we feminize that form of curiosity. And so once we feminize it, we demean it and mock it and it goes away. We call it gossip. It has nothing to do with gossip. So the idea is if we don't even value interpersonal curiosity, Preet, but it's essential to form connection, then we're doomed. So yeah, we text Text and in person, it doesn't matter in some ways. Good. It doesn't matter. I feel better you know? now. Yeah, definitely. When we come out of the womb, are we are we more curious about others? Or Absolutely. more or, no, or, or, or more self-interested in about ourselves? And are, are you saying no. that that's taught? No. That's culturally taught? That I'm telling you, if you listen to four and five, I'm not just telling you from my own opinion. I'm telling you from the research, four and five and six-year-olds are insanely interpersonally curious. They are asking questions about you and about your emotions and about why, and everybody knows why questions, but it's oftentimes why about why we do things. A boy says to his mother, mommy, why do you smile when you're feeling sad? So all of a sudden she realizes he's asking her a question about why she fakes an emotion. Another boy says, a little boy, five years old says, mommy, are you yelling at me because your mommy yelled at you? I mean, oh my God, you know, we, we are coming to this world brilliant in terms of relational intelligence, understanding the human, the range of emotions, why we fake emotions. They want to know, why do we fake emotions? And then by the time uh, 10, 11, 12 into adolescence and then adulthood, we just stomp that form of curiosity out. I mean, neuroscientists say, you know, it's 80% of our time is spent thinking about the thoughts and feelings of other people. And yet in schools and workplaces, we spend all our time getting people not to think about the thoughts and feelings of other people. Um, and so it's really is, we are trained to be so self-obsessed. We're trained to it. I'll be right back with Niobe Way after this. Support for this show comes from 1Password. Our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords, it's not one of them. They don't even like the job. Luckily, there's a way to free our brains from being password managers. It's called 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. All you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users in over 100,000 businesses, from IBM to Slack. Right now, listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com memory for your growing business. 
That's two free weeks at the number one password.com slash memory. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash memory. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. So I'm going to defy your view of the world and at this moment yeah, be very self-interested and ask you about me. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, definitely. So I, I was very shy as a young person. My best friend to this day is uh, a woman I went to high school with, but I didn't have many other friends and I'm not in touch with basically anyone from high school. I had a couple of good friends in college because I was still a shy person and, you know, fairly introverted. Almost every good friend that I have today, and I have many, many, many very close dear friends, both male and female, almost all of them became my friends and very close friends after the age of 21 or 22. Law school and in jobs and just otherwise meeting people through, you know, the ways that you meet people. And I have, I have you know, what, on, on, on any of those questionnaires that you see people fill out and talk about how many close friends they have. I have, I have more than I can count. And I, I know that's one of my blessings, Yeah, it is. but that's, but that's the reverse of the normal trend where I've read most people make all of their best friends before 21 and don't make a close friend many ever again after 21. Do I have that research correct? Yeah. I mean, basically the, you see the loss among certainly boys and men, and I know the numbers better among boys and men than girls and women. Um, so definitely, and and also since Deep Secrets came out in 2011, I'm still inundated weekly by men around the world saying, you're telling my story, this is my story. So it, it definitely is the case that most men struggle as they get older to find the friendships that they're looking for. However, even in my studies, as well as my own personal experiences, of course, there's always exceptions. There's always people that actually have been able to maintain their friendships over time or don't find them until later in life. And I would actually say I'm in the same category. I found my closest friendships later in life. Um, and I think that probably comes from somehow, Preet, I would, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to say something. I know nothing about you, but I got to guess. My guess is that even though you were shy when you were younger, uh, you were surrounded with a lot of love. Um, and so well, in my family, is, certainly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I mean. And so what happens for kids that have a very, did were you, can I ask a very personal question? Yeah. You can choose to, were you, what was your relationship like with your mom? Great. My, I, I, great. I have the best parents. Yeah. And I have a, I have a great younger brother. Yeah. Three years younger. I just, I just wasn't particularly, wasn't particularly social. I was a very awkward kid. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I mean, I, I'm just saying, so what happens with shy kids? And I've heard this from a, a lot of my students identify as shy actually. Um, and, and so what I've heard is that when you have the closeness in the family, that helps you acquire or keep rather, not acquire, 
uh, keep the skills, the natural human skills that you have as a five-year-old um, to be able to connect to people. Um, and what happens oftentimes with shy kids, and I, I have to say this is also true. I'm going to be, I'm going to bring in actually those who identify as very, very shy and even those on the spectrum. Um, oftentimes what I've heard from kids who I self-identify as being on the spectrum um, is that actually they don't think the rules of social engagement, which are actually about like faking emotions, make any sense. So they retreat because they don't think those social rules make any sense. It's not that they don't understand them. It's that they think that it doesn't make any sense. Why would you fake an emotion with someone you love? So there's something interesting about shyness, you know, and why thinking about why children, I mean, I, I believe in temperament. Some kids are more shy than others. Uh, but there is something interesting to me about what made it not enjoyable for you to engage socially. And the question would be to you, Pre, in sort of in your life, is to think about, was it, part of it was that those sort of social rules seem sort of, you know, mystifying to you <laughs> and you didn't want to play along. Um, and I just, do, I, I've heard that from other kids and I wonder. Yeah, I think, I don't know, was that, I think I, I lacked, I lacked some confidence in some ways and then you develop. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I've just <laughs> heard that story before. Yeah. People don't believe me when I say I was deathly shy. If I went to an event or a party, I talked to one person or nobody. No, I believe, I believe it. And that is yeah. not how I am today. Um, you know, within the family, I'm, I'm considered to be, you know, overly social. But I was not that way when I was 17. I was that way when I was 30. Yeah, and I and I think also uh, gaining confidence, obviously. I mean, I think gaining confidence for anybody um, helps you, you know, connect to people with more confidence. You're more able to connect. But I, but I do think, you know, teenagers will tell you, and even the most extreme forms, even in, um, unfortunately, people who have committed suicide, who've written journals that they've made public or letters, um, they will talk about the isolation they feel uh, as a young person when people are all sort of engaged in a way of interaction that they they think is fake. Um, and they're looking for authenticity. It's like the Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye, uh, Catcher in the Rye, which is he's looking for people who aren't phony. Um, and I've just seen that narrative in boys that are really suffering, a sense of looking for authenticity. So I want to ask you also, about the the relationship between the crisis of connection and you know the the hordes of people who don't have close connections, the relationship between that phenomenon and a couple of other things. One is romantic relationships. What effect does the crisis of uh, connection have on the ability of people who don't have deep friendships or haven't been able to form them on their ability to form? deep and lasting romantic relationships. It has a terrible effect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a terrible effect. Because ultimately, I mean, Eric Erickson said this in the 1960s, and it's it's definitely true. Um, he's a, the godfather of identity development. Um, he, basically, you learn the skills as a child with your family and with your friends, the skills of relationships. And that's just a fact. And you can learn them later in life. Pre, I mean, you can learn them when you're in your 20s and 30s, but you already learn them also with your family. So basically, you learn those skills with your family and your friends and having friends, especially in young adulthood, uh, where you can test out what happens when you have conflict and figuring out conflict and figuring out intimacy in your 20s and 30s, the ability to have romantic relationships. So I would say what's happening now in uh, the breakdown of relationships that you see in all sorts of ways is, and, and you read, there's a lot of articles about this now 
is that men are feeling very, you know, positive that there's so much attention to their emotional lives right now and their need for friendships, which is, you know, I, I like that I'm a part of that, making that a positive thing. Um, but they're also feeling like they, 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 you know, they're turning to their partner now as their therapist and wanting their girlfriend or wife to sort of help them figure out their emotional problems rather than, than turning to a friend because they don't have any friends. So that puts an enormous weight on a relationship when the wife is playing both the, you know, the role of spouse or girlfriend and then also therapist and then sometimes also, you know, organizer and all sorts of things that women tend to do in a, in a relationship with a family. So I, I just think there's a, there's a very negative dynamic happening that men are seeing women as their only friends and women are seeing women as friends and also, of course, their partners, but they don't want their partner to, they don't want to be their partner's only friend. Uh, because that's an enormous burden on the woman. So I, I would say it's it's had a devastating effect. And again, you know, it's funny because uh, it's not funny. It's just I, I really want to say this. If we make it about the problem is men's problem, we lose the what boys are teaching us because boys are really saying it's a cultural problem. It's not a group problem. It's not a men problem. It's not a woman problem. It's, you know, it's not a problem with a group of people. It's a cultural problem that we're all colluding in. We keep on missing what the issue is, and then we keep on not solving it. So we, and I just have to say this one more time because people miss it all the time. As long as we say we have a mental health crisis, the solution is only medication and therapy, get more therapists, et cetera. If we see that as a symptom of the crisis of connection rather than the problem, it's a symptom of the problem. If we see our problem as a crisis of connection, which is why I give you a big hug for stating it as one of the biggest crises of our times. Then we have to say that the solution has to be to build connection, not just add more therapists, right? Not just, I mean, there's, therapist is a good thing, but that shouldn't be just the only solution we have. It should be building connection. Is the decline in, in the quality and numerosity of friendships directly proportional or inversely proportional to the rise of uh, therapists? You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know, you know, when they get those, when mass shooters, I, I, the new book I, is going to come out in the fall, I do. I read a lot of manifestos of mass shooters, which was very depressing and difficult to read. But what you hear is that whole sense of, you know, e even, even one of, I'm not going to name mass shooters because I don't want to perpetuate a kind of obsession with mass shooters. But one of them mentioned, you know, they mention the culture. They mention that nobody seems to care that they're, you know, lonely and isolated and that there's a higher, they literally say this, this is not my academic language, that there's a hierarchy of humanness in our culture where some humans are considered more human than others. And that is true. We see that in all our ideological structures, you know, where certain humans are more human than other humans, whether it's a based on class, race or gender, sexuality, et cetera. Um, and they name it. And they, you know, they want us to see that it's a cultural problem. It's not an individual problem. And when nobody pays attention, what happens with these mass shooters? I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying when the solution becomes they should see a therapist and they're saying, I want you to care that I feel radically lonely. I want you to care. And people are saying, you should go see a therapist. You know, that's a, that's a disconnect. That's a disconnect. Because it's, it's the same thing when kids are bullied. What we oftentimes do is we take them out of that school. Are you kidding me? 
What does that do internally to a person who's being bullied? And then the, the reaction is, it's kind of your problem. We need to put you in a new school. We need to get you into a therapist. So I just think the therapy discussion, again, I don't want to, you know, therapists are really important and my kids see therapists and they're, you know, they're super important people to, to support people. I'm not dissing therapists, but, but a culture that only thinks the solution to problems is therapy is someone who doesn't get it. You know, it doesn't get it. It doesn't get that it, it has to be a culture that privileges, privileges building connections in the workplace, in the home, in schools. That's our top priority. How to make people feel connected to themselves and each other across difference within communities, et cetera. So we, we talk about politics on this show all the time. The central theme of the program and of, of how I think about the world. And yeah, you can affect change that way. And we talk about our increasingly polarized politics. And you mentioned a moment ago, your reading of manifestos of mass shooters. Those people are hopefully few and far between, mercifully. But how on a broader level does the crisis that you write about and research affect our politics? So Hannah Arendt said in the, um, in the 1930s, she wrote a book on totalitarianism. And she said at the root of totalitarianism and fascism is loneliness. And she talks about how loneliness basically creates uh, a desire to find a group and that it's a group that oftentimes is a hate group uh, because there's nothing more bonding in a very you know unhealthy way with bonding with people who hate another group. So whether that's the incel movement, whether that's the sort of very, very angry, whether right or left that's violent towards the other uh, the other side, um, that essentially loneliness, the disconnection from the self leads to a disconnection from seeing the humanity of others. So I always say this to my students, they always repeat it because it's, it's deep. What boys teach me, you know, and again, I want to repeat, it's boys of color from working class communities. It's very important. They're on the edges of power that they oftentimes have the most insight. When we're disconnected to our own humanity, we cannot see the humanity of other people. So you know, I would argue, and, and people are going to think I'm joking, I'm not joking. Donald Trump is very disconnected from his own humanity. I mean, that that is a lonely guy. Well, that's a guy I, I have never heard. That's interesting you mentioned that. Yeah. I think the evidence is that he does not have any close personal friends. Exactly. Exactly. And you see him, I mean, you know, what's, what's sort of I didn't know how to say the emotion when I respond to Trump, but, but, but the point is, is what's fascinating is he's sort of like a, he sounds like in obviously less isolated, but a little bit like a tone in some of the mass shooter manifestos. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not equating, I'm not equating for all your listeners. I'm just saying there's a kind of voice you hear in very isolated people. And it's a very angry people, uh, angry voice. And it's very much anti. So it's not, you know, the fact that some mass shooters are anti-girls or anti-black people or anti-Jewish people, um, it's it's classic symptom of loneliness where you think you're going to get the connection to other people who hate girls or who hate black people. What happens? Of course, you don't. So Trump actually doesn't get the connection with people who hate the Democrats or who hate women or who hate black people. He doesn't actually get the connection because you can't actually build connection off of hate. I mean, that doesn't actually create connection. <laughs> um, but the idea is to understand, I'm not saying have sympathy for Trump. I'm not saying that. I'm saying understanding the nature of why he's so spiteful, why he's so hateful. 
Um, and because if we're going to prevent it, we have to understand why mass shooters do it. Um, and it's not about sympathizing. It's not forgiving them. It's not saying, you know, it's, we, we should forgive them for their sins. It's really saying we have to understand why they kill people um, or say something hateful or damage this country as Trump has very much done in order to prevent it and, and to grow from it. And that's what we keep on not doing. We keep on thinking, oh, it's Trump is the problem or it's the mass shooters is the problem. They're not the problem, they're the symptoms. Trump is a symptom of our culture. I mean, that's it's simple as that. He's a symptom of our culture. So let's talk about how we might go about getting on the right path and solving the culture problem. These qualities you say that we teach boys, overly perhaps, to my ear are not inherently bad. Autonomy. Absolutely. Ambition, individualism. Um, you know, I possess all those qualities, but I value my friendships deeply. Are you just saying that we need to do them in, in different proportions? Well, well, this is it. Remember that there's a hierarchy of humanness, but there's also a hierarchy of human qualities where we've put what are human qualities, not gendered qualities, thinking on top and feeling on bottom. And we've given them a gender identity. Um, but thinking and feeling do not have a gender identity. They are basically human qualities. Thinking is half of our humanity, feeling is the other half of our humanity, and they work together like yin-yang. So the idea is that they, they function together. You cannot think without feeling. You cannot feel without thinking. Neuroscientists have been saying that for decades. So the idea is we've taken human qualities, we've put them on a hierarchy, and we've gendered them. So it's to get back to what it actually means to be human, which is coming out from developmental psychology, my work, as well as social neuroscience, which is that we're both hard and soft. We want autonomy and we want connection. We, we need to be stoic at times. When someone's suffering, stoicism is really important when you're listening to someone suffering. Uh, but also vulnerability is necessary to build closeness. We need both of those qualities, but we keep on, you know, privileging one and demeaning the other. And sometimes we think we have to flip the hierarchy. We, we can't flip the hierarchy because then we lose the autonomy and the stoicism that we need as well. So we have to stop thinking that it's a hierarchy. It's both two parts of our, our humanity that are core to our ability to thrive. And we have to nourish both and value both equally not saying one is somehow better. And I have to say one study, because I am a walking body of studies. <laughs> um, it's part of is, your uh, humanity. Exactly, it's part of my humanity, it's part of me. Um, so uh, in, at, in the Harvard's, um, I think it's the Center for Making Caring Common, they have a study that found something like, um, and it's in the, you can find it on the web, uh, 75 to 80% of parents said that academic achievement is more important than kindness. Um, and so the whole fact of if you live in a culture that thinks that academic achievement is more important, this is not Harvard parents, this is parents across the country, um, that academic achievement is more important than kindness, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in trouble. Um, so it's just that whole notion of really seeing that these parts of ourselves do not have a social identity. It does not have a gender, a race, a class identity. Thinking and feeling are human capacities that we're born with. Same with stoicism and vulnerability. You know, you could go on and on and on. So what else can we do? What else should educators do, parents do, folks who are okay, listening? Okay, there's so much. Yeah. There's so much. Okay. So we do a thing called, which I'll have to be another interview. Pre okay. <laughs> we, we, do, we do a thing called the Listening Project in schools across New York City, and, and we're now trying to expand it. Uh, and actually, Vivek Murthy is quite interested in what we're doing. Um, so it's where we're teaching something called transformative interviewing to kids 
um, of all ages, and we also teach a course at NYU in this in this method. It comes out of a method that I was actually training doctoral students for like 30 years at this point. And it's a form of listening with curiosity, and I'm now defining it in the work that's about to come out as, a, as the necessary ingredient for relational intelligence. It teaches us how to actually listen with curiosity, not listen meaning don't talk, which oftentimes means you're not listening. By the way, that's a good thing for podcasters to take also. That's what I'm saying, Pre, but, 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 you're, but you're doing it with me, right? I mean, when I say something, you say something that riffs off of what I just said and then asks me a question about it. And that makes me, the response, which is so fundamental, Pre, you already know this as a podcaster, but I feel listened to when you do that, what, right? When you lift off of what I just said and then you ask me a question about it to get more detail about what I mean, that actually makes me feel listened to and heard. And then what happens is then I actually, Pre, I actually feel connected to you because I feel like you're actually listening to what I'm saying. If you were just silent and then you just asked me your next question on your list, yeah. um, I actually wouldn't feel listened to. And guess what would happen? I wouldn't talk as much. Oh, and, we wouldn't, I would feel and like, we wouldn't have any listeners. No, exactly. Exactly. You, it's, it, I don't know where you put it on the hierarchy of human needs. And it sounds like yeah. you put it pretty high. And yeah. I'll come at this from a different angle. And that is the, the human need to be listened to. And the way it manifests itself in my prior work <laughs> is in confessions. Uh, oh, and, and I've asked the question, and I, there's a, a chapter in my book that addresses the, the crazy anomaly that people would think intuitively that somebody who's declared war on Americans and is an operational terrorist, why would such a person immediately after being taken into custody talk about all the things that they plan, talk about the people they plan them with when you know that hurts their cause yeah. because terrorists like others want to be heard and want their stories to be known. Of course, of course. And and oftentimes the root of their violence, like we talked about totalitarianism, the root of their violence is loneliness. And and that's true whether we're talking about terrorists or mass shooters or, you know, a political leader. I mean, you know, essentially it is fundamental that when we're, again, I'm going to repeat it because it's so important, when we're disconnected from our own humanity, meaning when we don't feel seen, we don't see ourselves. So we're struggling, no one's seeing us, we start to disconnect from our own humanity, and then we cannot see the humanity of other people. So, you know, when you get people who have been victims of crimes that want to sort of yell at the perpetrator to get them to see, there's no way, there's no way they're going to see, because they committed the act because they d literally don't see. And their response fundamentally, psychologically, is they don't feel seen. And so the, the the whole thing of breaking the cycle with this method, the listening with curiosity and the listening project is really about how do you start to actually listen and not just listen by not talking. And this is why it definitely is relevant to podcasters, listening by not talking, actually by listening, by saying, so what did you mean by that? And then what happened? And then what, right? I mean, all those beautiful things that five-year-olds do where they keep on asking a question until they get an answer and they won't stop. And so the whole thing is that we think that even listening is not talking at all. <laughs> it's just a funny thing. It's like, why would we think that's listening? It's not, I mean, it's, it can be listening. Uh, but but the point is, is oftentimes it's actually you're spacing out while someone's talking. So I, I just think that notion of understanding, the con like you said in the beginning of your podcast, to loop around, if we're in a culture that doesn't listen, that doesn't like allow us to see our own humanity, and we live in a culture that doesn't value our full humanity, we really shouldn't be so surprised 
that we're seeing such high levels of violence and suicide and depression and anxiety and loneliness. I mean, it is a culture that is literally, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say the word nurture because it's counter to what it actually does, but that nurtures a kind of disconnection, a kind of anger, and a kind of seething that we're all seething to be listened to, um, but refusing to listen because why would I listen to you, Preet, if I don't feel like you listen to me? Um, and so there's somehow we have to break the cycle by bringing, go back to your question, bringing it into our schools, teaching this method. We teach in all different topics, English classes, advisory groups. It, it's a tool that you could use in any topic. You can bring it into the workplace. It's shifting the paradigm from not saying what's wrong with you, which is what, how we oftentimes treat other people, but what can I learn from you about the nature of our problems and how to solve them? And what, what can you teach me about myself through your stories? And then they get to do the same thing with you, you know, learning from you so that you're both learning from each other about, about each other, but also about the larger world and about how to solve our own problems. And to me, I, I do want to add one, one thing. Just remember, in case people think I'm being bleak, I'm not being bleak. The beautiful thing about listening to young people is they teach us that we have already within ourselves, it's natural, the capacity to solve our own problems, that it's a natural human capacity. So all the solution is at the workplace, at the home, in the schools, is to nurture our natural relational intelligence, to ask questions of each other, to learn from each other, to wonder about why we smile when we're feeling sad. Um, that beautiful human capacity, even pre the way you're listening now, I can tell that you're really listening. I don't know how I can tell, but I can tell. In, the, in your questions, in the, in the way you're engaging with me, that's a gorgeous human capacity. And so to really nourish that and value it and celebrate it in these different contexts is the only way we're going to start breaking the culture from its obsession with uh, one version of humanity. Naomi Wei, thank you so much for your work, your research, your writing, and for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Preet. My conversation with Niobe Way continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. It's really engaging with each other around real questions, not what's your major, not what do you do, but actually where is home for you? And thinking about asking those questions and then they ask you that question. And then a deep connection gets built because you start to see each other as you see yourself. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by highlighting a graduation story. As you are surely aware, especially if there are young people in your lives, we are in peak graduation season. For my family, it's a pretty big year. Not one, but two of my kids are graduating this spring. One, my oldest, my daughter, just graduated from college, and my youngest son, in a couple of weeks, will be graduating from high school. I'm not sure how that's possible, since they were both just born. It's a joyous and sometimes bittersweet time when we celebrate the accomplishments of our loved ones, and in some cases, send them off to go somewhere new. And for 14-year-old Xavier Jones, his eighth grade graduation meant so much more than that. As reported last Friday by KMOV News 4, after his grandpa's car broke down a couple of days before graduation, Xavier decided to walk 
for two hours, a six-mile journey through St. Louis, Missouri, to Harris Stowe State University, where his middle school graduation was taking place. He was determined to walk the stage and receive his diploma. The university was so inspired by Xavier and his tenacity that its president, the university president, Dr. Latonia Collins-Smith, decided to offer Xavier a full ride to the college once he graduates from high school in four years. To Xavier, who aspires to be a NASCAR driver, the scholarship means the world. Quote, it means that I'm going to do something great and that I finally made it out of the eighth grade, end quote, he said. But his story doesn't end there. Last Friday, Xavier got not one, but two more surprises. This time, from Miami Dolphins football player, Taryn Armstead. When Armstead heard about what happened and Xavier's long trek to make his graduation, Armstead knew he wanted to do something for Xavier and his family. He said, quote, Xavier's a leader, whether he wanted to be or not. His story is inspiring. It's motivating. That's what leaders do, end quote. So last week, during a celebrity basketball game Armstead organized in his hometown, a couple of miles from St. Louis, Armstead surprised Xavier with a brand new electric bike and a new car for his family. Xavier's grandpa, who has been taking care of him and his six siblings after their mom passed away some years ago, was so touched by the gift, he said, quote, this means a whole lot. I don't know what to say. I'm so thankful, end quote. I hope Xavier's commitment inspires you like it inspired me. And if there are any graduates in your family, congratulations to them and to you on this great achievement. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Niobe Way. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Support for this show comes from HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot, because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. High-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.